and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jacob Gordon, a recent graduate of Harvard Law School. We will discuss his draft article, Gang Violence and Just War Theory. So welcome to the show, Jake. Uh, thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to have you on because I came across your article when it was mentioned by Larry Solemn on his legal theory blog. And to my knowledge, this is the first time Larry Solemn has ever responded to an article with the one word response, wow. And I got to say, I had the same reaction uh, in a very positive way. I suspect Larry's uh, reaction was positive as well. I think this is a really interesting and provocative paper, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it and sharing it with all of the listeners. However, I suspect a lot of listeners might not be familiar with just war theory. So I wonder if you could start by just kind of giving a kind of potted version, as it were, of what just war theory is and what it tells us in particular about the culpability of those who participate in a war. Um, yeah, so uh, just war theory is a very kind of big topic. Um, obviously, it it overlaps with international law, um, but as kind of a moral question, um, it asks about the the circumstances in which um, nations or militaries are justified in going to war, um, and then it also asks uh, kind of separately or perhaps not so separately, depending on the just war theorist, about the um, circumstances in which individual soldiers are um, justified or excused uh, in the in fighting in war. Um, so uh, questions on the sort of military side involve: Did this war have a just cause? Um, did the military adequately represent uh, the people that it claimed to? Um, did the military go to war as a last resort or before they needed to? Those are sort of questions that just war theorists ask um, about the uh, the act of going to war on the large scale. So whether waging war by a nation is justified. Um, and then on the individual scale, uh, the two main questions are uh, one, discrimination, it, it's sometimes called, and that kind of refers to whether individual soldiers targeted only um, soldiers of the other military, whether they uh, targeted another word for soldier is a kind of combatant is a term of art in, in just war, war theory. But um, so generally the, the rule is soldiers can only target other soldiers. They can't target civilians. Um, there's some kind of academic dispute about whether that's always justified. Um, actually a good amount of academic dispute about that, but that's, that's the kind of conventional rule. Um, and I, I stick to that rule in applying just war theory in the paper. Um and then the other rule is is also proportionality on an individual scale. Uh, so whether individual soldiers, um, when they committed a certain act in war, was it proportional to the ends that they were trying to to achieve, or did they cause unnecessary suffering um, and and damage? So that's I think broad strokes some of the rules of just war theory. Obviously, um, there's a long history. Uh, it has a lot of its roots in Christian thinking. Um, kind of back millennia, it, more recent just war theory and the just war theory I'm using, um, it's more, it, it's secular. It's not really attached to Christian theology. Uh, it became a sort of bigger and bigger topic in the second half of the 20th century. Um, and now there's, 
there's a mountain of scholarship about about all these questions and more. Um, and that's that's a little primer. Okay, so if I understand what you're saying correctly, then just war theory describes a sort of broad set of perspectives on whether and when uh, actions, war and actions within war are justified. And then within that body of theory, there's lots of other theorists who disagree about what the right answers to those questions are. Yeah, definitely. And and something that I uh, I struggled a bit with and I'm still trying to handle, um, and I think everyone working in this field uh, is sort of deciding what is consensus and what is not, um, and then being able to say sort of, this is settled, so when I'm going to apply it, it's settled, because there's so much that's that's unsettled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, so in your paper, you look at just war theory in relation to gangs and gang violence. So I wonder if you could start by explaining what you mean by a gang and whether and to what degree gangs differ from each other. Um, yeah, so this is also obviously uh, difficult um, to sort of draw lines because on one side you have gangs that are national or international operations that have very strong kind of group identities, very strong hierarchy. And then on the other side you have – you could. It, it, um, a few people, dozens of people who consider themselves a gang. Um, and I don't do too much work in the paper to draw a very clear definition. Um, my goal is more to say these are some characteristics that many groups have, many gangs have. Um, perhaps certain individual gangs don't fit all of these criteria and therefore shouldn't be included. But um, the main characteristics that I identified uh, were... I think collective identity um, and political aims. By those two things, maybe a little bit more I can say about each. Um, By collective identity, if you look at a a lot of gangs, um, I don't know necessarily most, but many gangs in the United States, um, A, people identify themselves as part of the group in a similar way, I think, to the way that many of us consider ourselves to be part of other national or sort of pseudo-national groups. Um, So that, to me, seemed important. And if you look kind of just at the data of the way that gangs work, that that, uh, does seem to bear out. Um, In addition to even just the the identity of the gang, there are things like clothing, um, things like language, um, and other markers that that I think signify even to a greater extent that these are like real communities that should be taken seriously as communities um, in a way that I think they're often not. Uh, and then on the political end, by that I'm, I'm really trying to identify that um, when gangs are taking part in warfare, often it's for similar kinds of ends that other, at least other unjust militaries um, are taking. So let's Think about um, the kind of Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, Certainly, it's an unjust war. Um, We can say, well, they're trying to seize territory. Um, And if you look at what gangs say they're doing and what other people say, what police officers and and, uh, cities say gangs are doing, is they are fighting to expand their territory over other gangs. So in many ways, I think that is a political end that the gang is trying to achieve. Um, in a way that seems in many ways synonymous with what other militaries are doing when they're extending um, into into, uh, uh, 
other kind of military um, territories. So, so what I was trying to identify with, with kind of what is a gang are isolating, I think, those two elements um, and then finding, wow, there are actually many, many gangs within the United States that do those two things. And I wonder where we can pull from just war theory to assess uh, the actions that they're taking. Mm-hmm. So I think this is one of the big conceptual moves in the paper. I mean, I, I took you to be observing that at least in some respects, gang warfare isn't just metaphorically, but literally a form of warfare and gang soldiers, not just metaphorically, but literally soldiers. I wonder if you could kind of reiterate or point out specifically where you think the biggest commonalities are. And also, are there places where you think that there are significant differences or where there ought to be legitimate pushback against the analogy or the, the, the simile <laughs> that, that you're pointing out? Um, yeah, so uh, I think I'll, I'll begin, I guess. I think some of the biggest commonalities are the, are, would reiterate the points I made about community and, and politics. Um, so I think the, some of the big similarities are, one, uh, fighting with a collective identity that, and I think importantly too, the identity is not only shared by soldiers. There are people, I mean, I think most famously, uh, you'll see kind of athletes who are associated with a gang and in a way that's generally kind of very pejorative that you hear, oh, this person put up um, like a gang sign in some kind of way. What does that mean? But but it, what it also identifies is that there are people who identify with this gang. So there's a community um, and there are soldiers who fight on behalf of the community, um, not all of which is soldiers. So that's one similarity is there are people who are fighting um, the kind of representatives of another community on behalf of their community. Um, another similarity also is that often this, this is kind of fighting for territory. Um, another similarity is that, uh, and I guess this gets into the substance of, of just war theory, is that um, there's often a degree of hierarchy within gangs um, such that you have in, in the case that I sort of tell the paper through is uh, a boy named Charles Williams, who was in the terms of the gang itself, a soldier who had, there were higher levels of hierarchy within the gang um, that mapped almost eerily similarly to, uh, to that of a, of a military. So the hierarchy can also be quite similar. Um, And then also issues of, discrimination that you'd expect in a, in a military, um, that a soldier would have a rule of, I target only soldiers, that you see that too, uh, it turns out, in many, not all, but many gangs. Um, so those are some similarities. Some important differences, I mean, I think that the most obvious difference is that there is an international law that I'm mostly ignoring. I'm ignoring it because the international law, in my mind, is, root, is rooted in one of two things. It's either rooted in kind of a prudential calculus of we just don't want to afford certain rights to certain people um, because if we did so, it would have consequences we don't like. And to me, that's not morally very convincing, which is why I'm not I I, I don't engage with it too much. But um, that's sort of one reason that uh, that international law is going to exclude gangs. Um, Another reason is that you might think just war theory itself is just a prudential uh, kind of tool that we have that it doesn't reflect a deep morality of war 
um, it just reflects the fact that it's in the best interest of nations and soldiers to have these certain rules of engagement. Um, and if you think that, then it's quite important that gangs don't represent militaries because it means that there's just no reason to ex- extend the protections to gangs because the pr- the prudential reasons um, are, are kind of all just war, e- uh, just war theory, sorry, um, stood on to begin with. So if you take that perspective, then the difference is, is, is significant enough that I think that the paper is going to fail. Um, I try to give a few arguments for why just war theory is deeper than just the prudential reasons. Um, I think they mostly relate to intuitions we have about um, kind of collective action as being meaningful. Um, and, and then also intuitions about individual cases. So if you think about U.S. Revolutionary War soldiers... Um, they're not representing an institution that was a nation on the world stage to have the sort of rights of nations um, in military engagement. But we just think that there, that that was a war and that they were a military. Um, and, and I think that intuition is quite telling um, in terms of whether there is like a deep morality to war. Um, So that's, that's, I think largely the move that I make, um, but but granting that that if you just don't buy that there is a morality of war, then the analogy isn't going to go very far. Right, right. I mean, that doesn't seem like it makes the paper not work because on some level, then it's illustrating something important about the normative basis for just war theory in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I, I also think that there's a degree to which... Um, yeah, what I'm trying to do really on sort of a more meta level, I think, with the paper is say, who do we extend or to whom do we extend um, our charitable interpretations of action um, and to whom don't we? And it seems that we do extend really charitable interpretations to the actions of national soldiers, both soldiers of sort of the U.S. military, but also soldiers of militaries that uh, at least in the United States, we don't have as much reverence for. We still were really eager, I think, to say what's kind of the best case we can make for their actions. Um, and what I'm trying to say is if we're going to do that, then we ought to do the same to everyone in similar circumstances. Um, and but I, but I think what someone who doesn't kind of buy that there's a deep morality to war they might say, well, I'm not even extending it to the national soldiers. So I would say that's that's okay. But for the majority of us who do, we should extend it both ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So changing course just a little bit, uh, in the paper, you discuss two concepts in just war theory. I think the law of war more broadly, namely use ad bellum and use ad bellum and use in in Bellow. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what those are, what what they mean and why they exist, and sort of how you think they're relevant in this context. Um, yeah, definitely. So uh, the the sort of separation there is what I was, I think, referencing at, referencing at the very beginning, um, whereas the first prong is sort of asking, when is it just for uh, nations or militaries to go to war? And when, and the second prong is asking, when is it just, or under what circumstances is it just for individual soldiers to do individual things during war? 
Um, and that's a really important line um, in, in many militaries. I mean, for example, in, in the Russian case, uh, we certainly don't think that it, it's a justified war. Um, so sort of the first prong is, is certainly a failure. Um, but we might not think that the individual soldiers are all, the individual Rus- Russian soldiers are all murderers on par with sort of a criminal law murder. Um, we might not think that they're justified. I don't think that they're justified, but it's, it's sort of, there's some distinction there. And to draw that distinction, we, we need to separate sort of the act of going to war and the things that people do in war. Um, so also, particularly two gangs, I, I try to make very clear in the paper that the act of, let's say, the um, gangster disciples, which is the name of a gang in the paper, the act of going to war against another gang is certainly not justified. Um, it's not in territorial self-defense. Uh, it's not for humanita- humanitarian intervention. Um, there's really no case uh, that, that you can make that that's a justified act. So the leaders of the military, um, we would not extend these kind of excuses to. Uh, what, I, what I try to do, though, is say that the individual soldiers um, might act the same way that the sort of Russian individual so- soldiers do. So uh, in, the, in the case of Charles Williams, um, if you look at the testimony at trial, um, he targeted only a member of another gang, the same way that we would expect a, a soldier to. And that's something that Yus and Bello um, would require. And he acted in a way that seemed at least arguably proportional to the, the military aim. So he was trying to control an apartment building um, and... A member of another gang tried to come into the apartment building and it is taken as a, as a territorial threat. And so uh, he participated. He didn't actually uh, kill the member of the other gang, but he participated in the killing. So um, so it, in my view, I think you can if you separate the two, you can start to see that the actions of the individual soldier um, are similar to the actions of other of other soldiers of unjust militaries um, where that leads you is the question of how separate can these two concepts really be? And that is a matter of huge debate uh, within just war theory. The kind of conventional answer is actually they're 100% separated. They're, I think the term that uh, Walter uses in the sort of most canonical text of, of orthodox just war theory is that they're logically independent. Um, it's I don't know exactly what he means by that, but the... The idea is that, well, no, a Russian soldier, as long as they follow the rules of, of um, discrimination, proportionality, they are not liable at all uh, in a moral sense. There, the debate, uh, sort of the response to that, um, says that, well, I mean, I think for many reasons that are intuitive to us, we're not willing to say that it, it's sort of completely justified for an individual soldier of an unjust military um, to even if they are only targeting other soldiers, we just don't think that that's kind of actually a hundred percent kosher, um, which I'm I'm I accept and, and I think it is probably right. Honestly, uh, the sort of most uh, the most popular I think counter argument to the Walt, Walters view is that if you have an it, on the in the sort of conventional view, it's it's as if we have two boxers who say I'm going to fight. And then they fight each other. And then when one of them falls down, we don't say, oh, 
um, that was sort of an assault. We say, well, they were both willing. Um, the problem is, in a defensive war, it's probably much more similar to say someone invades your house and you want to protect your child. So you say, um, fight me instead of my child. We don't actually think that the, that the robber is then justified in fighting you. Um, so that's sort of the kind of big reason to think that the soldiers of the just and the unjust militaries are not equivalent. Um, but still, even if you take that view, you probably are going, meaning the kind of revisionist view where just soldiers and unjust soldiers are not equivalent. You're still going uh, to probably think that there are certain excuses that you can extend to unjust soldiers. So some of those excuses include um, whether they were acting under duress of their military, whether they were uh, epistemically relying on their military's claim that what they were doing was just, uh, whether they were representing a political community, um, which sort of ties back to the initial point of uh, what makes a gang a military, um, and then also whether uh, whether they were acting to sort of specifically protect some of their loved ones. Um, so those are sort of all excuses that even if you don't think unjust soldiers uh, or unjust combatants are the equivalent to just combatants, you still might think that they are not the same as murderers. And that I try to utilize to say 100% just or, uh, gang warfare is unjust, um, but individual gang soldiers often sort of follow the rules of war. And then where you land is is either the orthodox theory, which would lend pretty significant moral excuses to, uh, to gang soldiers, or the revisionist theory. And even on the revisionist theory, you have this panoply of excuses that sort of mitigates what we think gang soldiers are doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so I think the intuitive response that a lot of people have to your argument before they think about it more deeply is that the laws of war and just war theory in particular only apply to state actors and their agents. But as you point out in your paper, that's, that's just not true, right? I mean, we think about those concepts in relation to non-state actors all the time. I mean, most recently or maybe not most recently, but quite recently, like in the long running war on terror, as it were, right? There were many non-state actors who we spent a lot of time wrestling with how they fit into the laws of war and, and just war theory. What do you think that tells us or, you know, does that bring the analogy closer or farther away to your mind from, from gang, from gang warfare? Yeah, I think, um, so I think two two points are relevant. One, I think it 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 exhibits a lot of the problems that I'm struggling with too. In that, when you're talking about whether, uh, let's say, Taliban fighters or, or uh, Al Qaeda fighters can claim some parts of just war uh, just war theory, you're going to run into a lot of the um, biases. So very understandable biases against doing that um, that I think are the same with gang warfare because before people start to think about, I think the most charitable interpretation of the actions, you picture the terrible atrocities that, that you've seen. Um, and it, it can be very hard to extend the sort of charitable interpretation once you are thinking about the atrocities. So, so in that way, the exercise has been similar. And I, it, 
rely on the work that other just war theorists had have done in the last 20 or 30 years um, to extend these theories to really unsavory actors, um, despite the sort of emotional biases against them. So, so in many ways, there are parallels. One important way that I think my paper is, is perhaps kind of less radical or more uh, digestible to people is that I'm not trying to say that just that, that gang members are justified in attacking the United States. I'm, I'm suggesting that the excuses extend when gang members are attacking other gang members. And the reason that that's relevant is that um, for one very important excuse that we might give to soldiers, um, it, this kind of waiver excuse of the two, the two boxers uh, fighting in, in the ring, we don't say that one is assaulting the other because they both sort of signed up for it. Well, that doesn't work as well, um, as I said before, if you're attacking, uh, let's say, the United States, if you're attacking kind of a civilian base, a library or a, a school or whatever it is, um, because even if there is a security guard at the library or school fighting back, they are purely acting in defense. So it, it's much harder to carry that analogy to the boxers, and it's much more similar to someone protecting their home. But in the situation of gang members, we think that both sides of, of, the, of the war are sort of unjust sides. And what that means is that the boxer picture is actually more similar than it might otherwise be, um, because neither side can really justifiably claim, oh, I'm just protecting my home, um, because there are aggressive wars and neither side has a justified claim to the territory that it inhabits. Um, so, so I think that's one important case where I'm not at all willing to say, at least without thinking much more about it, that a terrorist who targets civilians can ever claim, or even targets just military targets, um, uh, can ever claim just war theories protection. Um, but the gang situation is importantly different. Um, and, and so that I think is, is a bit of a similarity and a bit of a difference between other non-state actors. Mm -hmm. So it, it seems to me that the overwhelmingly uh, prevailing view among just war theorists is that when you've got soldiers from competing sovereign states engaging in military action against each other, then so long as the soldiers are acting consistently with the rules of law, their culpability is effectively zero, right? That's not the case when it comes to gangs, or at least in your article, you suggest that that shouldn't be the case when it comes to gangs, but that it should, uh, by contrast, be perhaps a mitigating factor of some kind. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you see as the difference between the two and why you think it shouldn't be entirely exculpatory, but maybe only mitigating. Um, yeah, the reason for that, uh, I, I think there are two reasons for that. Uh, one of which is that if I take the view that um, unjust soldiers from a moral perspective, are not equivalent to just soldiers, um, and that they instead need to rely on these specific excuses, then even though I do think many of the excuses travel to gang members, for example, uh, the communal identity point is very strong. Uh, the waiver point, I think, is very strong because of what I was just discussing about you're fighting an, another unjust combatant. Um, so the waiver point is that they've sort of given up their rights to, to claim you can't attack me uh, are, are real. Um, I think the most kind of famous example of that is Omar in The Wire. And I, that's really actually part of what inspired the paper is Omar 
only attacks people who are in in the game or who are who are generally drug dealers. Um, and the theory is sort of, well, they have relinquished their rights to say, you can't touch me. Um, and, and with gangs, I, I do think that there's a real moral claim there. Um, but there are other excuses that are weaker for gangs uh, than, than soldiers of unjust military. So a major one is epistemic reliance. Um, I do believe that many gang members, and obviously gangs aren't monolithic in this way, but many rely on the orders of their commanders, perhaps even to think that what they're doing is justified. Um, but it's really hard to think that they rely on it on, on their leaders with as much justification as soldiers do, uh, given the sort of national apparatus and national propaganda that, that lead to people going into militaries. Uh, that's one example. So, so I think the excuses just flatly aren't as strong, even though I think they're, they're notable. I don't think they're as strong as for national soldiers. The other reason that I wouldn't extend to sort of complete, um, complete moral excuse or complete at least legal excuse is the instrumental uh, just sort of pragmatically. I do think obviously we need to make we need to make laws with an eye to to practice, even if not, even if we shouldn't um, evaluate the sort of moral questions with an eye to practice. And once we do turn to making laws with an eye to practice, you it becomes quite important to say, well, we can't eliminate all the deterrence or incapacitation because we do want gang warfare to stop. Um, so then where I land is I'm not suggesting, well, we should not be able to convict people for gang violence um, because there are really important consequential reasons to prosecute uh, gang members. But but when we do so, we should have an, be very aware and clear about the fact that we are prosecuting them for consequential reasons and perhaps weak retributive reasons, but not strong retributive reasons. And therefore, insofar as mitigating their prison sentence or offering them a prison alternative would not decrease the consequentialist benefit of their sentence, we should embrace that uh, rather than turn away from it. And when you look at the kind of current law on the matter, being a member of a gang member, being a member of a gang, um, is is often a factor that makes one's punishment much more severe, uh, which which for the reasons I try to identify, I don't think is is really consistent with the moral theory that should apply. Right. Well, I mean, why do you think why do you think that is? Because I mean, you argue that that the gang context context ought to be a mitigating factor, but as a practical matter, it's almost universally an exacerbating factor. So, on some level, that's like the the most kind of counterfactual sort of claim that you're making. Why do you think that the general move has been to go the other direction rather than the one you're suggesting? That's an interesting question. I I don't know the history on sort of why that's happened. Uh, so anything that I w- would say is completely from the armchair. My, my really, again, rough, rough guess is that the thinking kind of came from a place of, of public safety and it was a fear that if you were anything but as hard as possible on gangs, you would somehow be incentivizing young people to join gangs. Um, but I imagine that there were also important kind of racial overtones to that. Uh, so so I can't say with, with any certainty at all, but that I imagine is some of the thinking that was going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so in, in light of your paper, I couldn't help but thinking as well, like how should, if at all, 
the arguments you're making inform the way we think about police violence, especially when it's unjustified. We tend to think of it now, I think, as largely like a sort of an aberrant act uh, in a largely civil and sometimes kind of conventionally criminal sense. Does it? Does your paper suggest that maybe we ought to think about police violence, especially against civilians, as being effectively a form of war crime? Uh, that's another interesting question. And again, it, it's one that I haven't thought enough about. Um, I think it, I, I do think that my paper certainly suggests that you could think about police violence um, on gangs it, it, when it is justified. So, uh, or at least when, when it's militarily justified. So uh, a gang is actively intruding on a territory um, with weapons and the police are trying to stop that uh, also with weapons, um, often with kind of militarized weapons that we really can think of that conceptually as a, as a war. Um, and it's interesting that often we do use terms like the war on crime. Um, it, it's not so it's not brand new to the lexicon, even if it might be to sort of the theorizing. Um, but but I I want to stress because I do think that at least in kind of my first drafts, I wasn't clear about this point. I I don't think that necessarily means that the United States is war against a gang would be an unjust war. You could think actually that would be the prototypical defensive war um, that the United States should engage in, and the police are the soldiers, um, and as long as they're abiding by discrimination and proportionality, it's completely justified. So I don't want to equate the two. Um, but, um, but it's an interesting question, especially, yeah, when, when civilians are involved, um, and one that hopefully I'll think more about, I I think the, the move that you made is exactly the move that I'm trying to inspire, which is taking moral constructs that we have. So just war theory, um, that I think are, that are, like deep and good constructs that we have and asking if we are really as fair as we can be about using this, where do we land? Um, and I think that if we do that more and more um, that, so this is kind of one example, but I, but I have thought about others and um, there's great work about others that we will end up acting more fairly toward many criminals who, who have not been given the sort of respect um that that a lot of kind of more respectable actors have. Amazing. Well, Jake, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a great paper. I really enjoyed talking with you about it. And I hope listeners will pick it up and read it themselves. It's a great read. Thanks so much. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, um, I'm so happy to be on.
whole neighborhood as I gazed at the houses unchanged by the years. In my throat came a lump and my eyes filled with tears. Why, I looked at the lamppost, the pump, and the stoop, and again I could picture us kids in a group. Why, there were Shorty and Yella and Skinny and Mike and the rich kid who had ball bear and skates and a bike. And down near the school, I could see the brick wall where we used to go for a game of handball. And the crabby old janitor say, the one who chased us away, say, what wouldn't I give just to see him today? Ha, 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 ha. 